Hello, you lovely human, and welcome to season two, episode six of the Inside Out podcast. And I am your host, Kira McCullough. I want to start off this episode by just thanking you from the bottom of my heart for all your support and for tuning in every week. It's genuinely so amazing to have so many listening in, and the Inside Out podcast has listeners now in over nine different countries worldwide. It blows my mind, but I have a heart full of gratitude for each and every one of you. Today's episode is a special one, as we speak to Gary Rutherford. Gary is the founder of Arc Fitness. He's a registered mental health nurse and a personal trainer, and importantly, has been sober for over nine years now. Gary struggled with alcohol and drug abuse for the better part of 15 years. Getting and staying sober has enabled him to pursue a life of love, purpose and fulfilment, and he is fortunate to be able to use those experiences to carry hope for other individuals and families who are actively struggling with addiction. This is the most genuine and heartfelt interviews I've had, and if you can spare some time, take some time to go to Arc Fitness and support Gary's new venture, and also support his new endeavour of running five marathons in five days with a £22 weighted vest on as part of his No Shame campaign to bring conversation around the area of addiction. Gary also has an amazing line of epic hoodies that you can buy and purchase that support Arc Fitness in the work that they do in helping individuals and families who are struggling with addiction. So without further ado, welcome Gary. Thank you so so much for being part of the Inside Out podcast. I am um, I'm really excited for this talk, and um, thanks so much for being part of it. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you very much too for asking me. Um, whenever we connected, I literally jumped straight on your Instagram and had a look, and hey, loved everything that you were doing. So it was a yes. It was a resounding yes. So I'm really excited to be able to just have a conversation about stuff and life. Yeah, like the whole ethos of this podcast is just real conversations with real people about the real stuff that matters and when I heard your story on, on the Late Late Show a couple of weeks back I, I immediately was like took had a biro I had no page I wrote your name down on my hand and I was like need to make contact with this guy just you know and I've, I've read two different articles and stuff and and been on the ARC fitness page and kind of stalked you there for the last week or so to see to get to know you <laughs> but one of the articles you wrote, um, and it was about your, your your story and your journey, but at the end of it, it said, if I if I can, you can, um, yeah. and be encouraged. And when I reached out, I, I, I said to you, I said, our paths are different, our stories are different, but the work that we're trying to do is the same. Um, and that's why I was so eager to get on this, this conversation. Um, uh, talk to me, so for the people who don't know you, talk to me about you and your journey so far. Um, we'll, we'll start now. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump a little bit. So right now, I am the founder of Arc Fitness, which is an addiction recovery service uh, based in Derry, Londonderry. And what we do is we use primarily exercise as the vehicle for recovery, for sustainable recovery in a sober active community. Along with um, educational pieces, we run a six week structured program. So that's the, that's the Arc piece. I am a registered mental health nurse and I've been working as an addiction nurse therapist for the last two and a half years and three and a half as a nurse before that. And in August, I will be 10 years clean and sober. 
So I have my own backstory of struggling with addiction, struggling with recovery, maintaining recovery. Um, and, you know, I started started using drugs not all really young. Um, and I said that on the show, I was, there's no major trauma in my life. You know, I had great parents, I had great parents and I was just a really anxious kid. Um, and I was bullied at school and just learned to use other mechanisms to cope with lots of different things from self-esteem issues, anxiety, wanting to fit in, you know, not being confident. And unfortunately for me, that snowballed as life progressed and you pick up the micro traumas, as we call them, the little things that happen along the way. And it got to that point where I wasn't functional. Um, my life was in a mess. It was chaotic. It was destructive. It was hurting other people and things had to change. Um, and in 2009, the process started. Sounds like a lifetime ago now, whenever I'm saying that, but it's lots of, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then, but that's really it in a snapshot. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't really go into the nitty gritty because I think it gives it too much weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, congratulations, by the way, as well. Um, Thank you. It's a great achievement. Um, not to go into the nitty gritty, but to, to go back a small bit um, and touch on that anxiety and maybe the bullying part. Um, was that where your addiction started or at what age were you when it started? I like I can remember first drinking 11, 12. It was quite young in the culture that we were in. And there wasn't a lot to do as a teenager, but that anxiety. So I was bullied at school and then I was taken from a school and placed in a school in another town. So here came the process of trying to reinvent myself um, and I became the total opposite of what I would have liked to have become and you know the alcohol and the thing was a lot about acceptance and a lot about fitting in um, but also I liked how it made me feel and I wasn't a good drinker and I wasn't a real a good drug user um, I was chaotic from the start but it, it dampened that ball of anxiety that I always had and I think Bullying does that to a person. It makes you question yourself, like, what's wrong with me? Why did I get bullied? There's clearly something wrong with me. And at that age, you don't have, I didn't have the skills or the coping mechanisms or the emotional intelligence to figure all that out. So for me, it was almost the, the easy accessible option that I used at the time. Um, what, age was what age? Um, second year in the North, which is 11, 12. Okay. 12, 13. Um, it's not the age because it's just, I, my biggest, um, the reason I do the work that I do is because if someone had told me in school that, you know, you're not your thoughts or, you know, how to deal with your emotions, um, it would have been absolutely life-changing for me. So that's one of the reasons why I am a big advocate for going into schools and, and, and teaching people about that. Um, you know, and similar to your story, if you had been told about bullying and emotional and your emotions and stuff. Do you think it would have changed your journey? I definitely, and, and, I, and I've been asked this question a few times since, like, what would you go back and tell yourself? But you yeah. know, you're at that age. And I think for me, it would be that you're okay the way you are. Mm -hmm. Because I felt that I wasn't. And I felt, as I said, you there was something wrong. And I do think in school and at that age, there needs to be that focus on resilience. So there needs to be that focus on learning about emotions and negative emotions, which we, we didn't get at school, you know. Um, and I think the key to fighting a lot of the dependence issues, whether it's food or porn or, or drugs or it's alcohol, is about being okay with self, being okay with who you are and being self-accepting 
And if you're okay, then you don't need something to change that. Yeah. So that advocacy work, all of that school work is really important. We, do you remember, I don't know, did you have the drug suitcase thing? No. We used to have the, we had the police used to come around the school with a drug suitcase and they used to tell you, like, drugs are bad, don't do drugs, and, and you were told off, and then they left. Wow. You need to go in and tell people, you know, this is how you deal with life. Yeah. And you don't need the suitcase. Um, that was a big thing for me as well, because I did a lot of work with various different charities and going to schools, telling your story, and then leaving. And I, it never sat well with me at all, because, you know, my story goes back to when I was in school. And I think a lot of students could resonate with it. And then you go in and you you tell this story and then you, you literally feck off and you leave them. So you unearthed all this stuff. And, you know, there's probably a few students, a handful of students that would have resonated with it. And then you just leave them to their own advice advices. And that just never sat with me. Um, so now one of the big things I do is just go into schools, tell my story, and then this is what works for me. And this is how you handle your emotions. This is what resilience looks like. And this is how we can put you on the path to, to making sure that you can better cope with your emotions and your mind. Um, and you're right to do that. And like, there's so much power in storytelling because this is how you relate to people. Um, and and I've, I have found that in my journey, people relate to your honesty and your, you know, your openness. Um, and obviously within the context of, of where you're working, but people relate to people. And if you can go in at that age and openly talk about your story and the hurt and the distress, but also as long as you're telling them they also this is what you need to do to be able to go yeah. on and do this, yeah, then you do a, a brilliant job. And it's so important at that age. Um, those are your formative years. Those are your those are the dividing years, and they're so important to get right. Um, if it's okay to ask, what age were you when you had your first drug? I'm going to say 13. Okay. And it was cannabis. Not long after that, it was it was ecstasy and MDMA. I do you know I was just I was always just seeking to feel different. Mm. So it was um and almost romanticized the scene. Yeah. And in hindsight, hindsight's a great thing when you're 40 and you can look back and <laughs> you can see all these things now. And um, I see just how detrimental they were at every single stage going forward in terms of decision making you know relationships with people relationships with family education mm. you know my secondary education was awful because i just wasn't in that space mm. and were you when you were taking drugs or alcohol it was it to fill a void what, what was was it was it that anxiety that it was trying to to fill or to replace and that's and so that's that, that's what it is so you create it's like it's like a relationship you know, the first time, I remember the first time that I drank and I was on the streets and, you know, and it was exciting and because you weren't supposed to do it either. And it was almost that hook from that, from that initial, that initial evening, you know, um, it just progressed really, really, really quickly to the point where, you know, like I would save money, lunch money. I wouldn't eat at school because I would save the money to drink at the weekend. And then that progressed and I started working on a bar collecting glasses because you try to get close to the thing that you want. Yeah. And, you know, I always made access to these sort of things easier going forward, but it was always about trying to make me feel something else apart from anxious and scared. Mm. And it's funny, I, I, don't, I don't regularly use the word scared, and it's just come out now because that's how I felt a lot of the time as a young person. I felt scared and I felt afraid. Um, like, we grew up in, in the north. That wasn't an easy place to grow up in. 
Um, you know, and then if you're anxious on top of that because I've been bullied at school, you've a fear of assault and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So I think I was just afraid. And I think it helped me just not feel afraid. Okay. Um, when did you know that it was it was a problem? First conversation I had with somebody, I was 17. Okay. And that was before I, I had eventually gone away and left and gone to Scotland and gone to university. But I remember having that conversation and it was again after another really chaotic evening where there was things said and trouble made and there was a mess they clean up and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and I, even then, it might have been the first time I said I recognised there was a problem, but I didn't necessarily do anything about it at that stage. Mm. You know, I didn't, you know, when you're 17, the culture tells you it's all right everybody does it you'll be you know you'll grow out of it or you'll get over it yeah that didn't happen for me i think it's also hard though as well because i remember back uh, to my story and jesus i knew at 17 18 19 was my first suicide attempt so i i didn't believe then that talking could help or things could be changed or you know anything could be different yeah um so even in getting all that help that i so gratefully did mm -hmm. uh i didn't give my heart to Soulswood because I didn't think it was going to change. And, you know, your story reminds me so much of my story in, in some ways because there's that element of personal responsibility that at 1920, I didn't, I didn't have. Um, and not because I didn't want to have it, but because I didn't believe that talking, something as simple as talking about how I felt would change things. Would that be similar for you or? I think, you know, I didn't, I didn't really take personal responsibility until I was maybe 28 or 29. Mm. I made half-assed excuses and tried, you know, this, this will, I'll sort this out because it'll help other people around me. But it wasn't until a penny dropped with me. And I like to think, well, I don't like to think, I think I was just a slow learner. It took a long time. But um, like, go back to what you were saying, like for you to get to a point where you were at at that stage, you know, devoid of hope is mm. a really difficult place to be. Um, and like the desire, if somebody had told me that, you know, if you sat down in a room with somebody and talked about these things, you'd feel lighter, fresher, and you, you know, you might have a different perspective, but I was so full of pride that I refused to do that because I was smarter than everybody else in the room. I felt that you couldn't tell me anything because I knew everything because I was arrogant and I was, you know, and that was a real barrier for me to accept the help in the first place. And people tried to help. But I was just, I don't know, was it guilt or was it shame or, or was it just personal responsibility goes a long way. And it does in mental health recovery, it does in addiction recovery, because I can't force people to get better. Mm -hmm. I can guide and support, but unless somebody actually decides that they want to change, then that's when the, that's when the change happens, you know. Um, what was the, the, the defining moment? You know, what was the... The real catalyst for change for you in your story where you kind of just went you know what actually i am now going to take that personal responsibility whether you knew it at the time or not what was that moment there, i felt I, I think there was a the, because it's a process there was a few there wasn't sometimes somebody said to me once sometimes god takes a sledgehammer to crack a nut and i was running out of sledgehammers because you know one i i broke my back uh, and I was in a metal frame and then I drank again then I lost fingers and thumbs and another accident and I drank again and I was like oh this is it now I'm stopping now and then my marriage failed and then well this is the this is this is the one now and I'm going to sort myself out and then rehab number one happened right and then rehab number two happened 
And then the last relapse that I had, um, I was so physically and so emotionally sick um, that that was it. And the reason that was it for me is because there was a change in my thinking from you can't drink and use drugs to I don't want to do this anymore because I just can't go on with it. And that subtle switch was the difference between me struggling. I mean, almost having 10 years now in August. Um, it's, I find those, those subtle switches that's so profound because it's these little tiny moments that like when we look back on it, it's just this, not even a, a, yeah, a tiny moment you could say that just stopped you and, and altered your thinking into actually, I'm not willing to, to be this person anymore. I'm not willing to do that. And, you know, often I, I speak to clients about, you know, what are you willing to do? And they'll say, look, I'm willing to do X, 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 X and X. And then I go, okay, what are you willing to not do anymore? And it's a different, if it's, it's a different scenario. Um, where did your, where did that begin? So, you know, what was that process like of recovery initially? Um, what was that, what I kind of touch on the hardest part at, at the start, if that's all right? The start? Um, so I have detoxed many times in the past and I've medically detoxed, I've detoxed in hospital. And this was the first time I didn't, I didn't medically detox. And I, I did what I told everybody in the world not to do and, and I went cold turkey and it was just awful. It was it was just so uncomfortable. Um, and then what happens is you're feeling so sick and uncomfortable then your mood drops. Mm. And then, then what happens is when you stop using your chemicals and you stop using drugs, your mood dips to a real low and it doesn't automatically just come back up again. So learning to live sober and learning to function in a society that, you know, that celebrates alcohol was really difficult because it was everywhere. Um, and I literally had to take it step by step. I had to look at the people in my life. I had to look at the people that I didn't want in my life anymore, the places that I went to. Um, physical activity slipped in there. I was never fit and active. So when I got, I got sober in the August and joined the Rono Club on the, the September um, and started to do things that were kind of beneficially building up the the deficits, the self-esteem deficit that I know I had, the self-worth deficit. So I started to fill that, that void with other things, mm -hmm. um, volunteering. The things we tell people to do that are good, being a bit self, being, it's, it's, I'm going to say it's saying a bit selfless, but it's actually selfish because you're also getting something in return. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and I literally, it was textbook recovery. It was, it was, if you look at what all the fundamental building blocks you need for recovery, that's what I did. But it took two years to figure that out. Mm. And then it took a long process, an emotional process and a healing process and learning to, I married a therapist, which is always helpful, um, you know, to help process all of the stuff that was in the background. And, you know, definitely um, it wasn't an overnight. Yeah, right. but you know what, it, I think it comes down to, I'm a firm believer in the power of choice. Um, and when we decide to take that, we'll go down that journey of, I'm actually going to take responsibility for my life and, and own our story. Um, we can now make the choices that better was bring us to where we want to be, where, where we want to be and, and who we want to be and how we want to feel uh, for the betterment of ourselves. Um, and I, I was looking up ARC Fitness and, you know, there's there are five pillars, which is what you speak about. And I, and I love it. It's um, honest, honestly, respect. You show up, you smile and enjoy, and you ask questions. And I think it's actually not just for addiction recovery, but life in general. I think 
there are five pillars that we could all start to live by a bit more. Because um, even when I look at my recovery, I see a lot of these five pillars in, in how I became better as well. And to me, they, they signify that. So maybe you could just touch on them a little bit and, and see, are they something that you've, you've taught up yourself? Um, are they applicable to your recovery? The way that, we, the way that I, I, I run ARC and I set up ARC the same way as I, would, I, I approached my recovery. So I approached it from an accountability perspective. I am accountable to everybody in ARC as, if, as they are accountable to each other. And that's the honesty and the openness and the transparency. That's the encouragement and the positivity. I needed people in my life that were there to A, challenge me, but also encourage me to show me and demonstrate that things could be better. The choices, we try to model choice. We try to model what happens when you make good choices, but we don't punish people for making bad choices. Mm-hmm. because this is also a process and this is the non-judgmental thing was a big part of our because it's hard society's hard it's hard to be somebody in recovery in society from either mental health issues or, or addiction issues or whatever i needed to create a space that people could come despite their past despite the things that they had done whether the guilt or the shame that was their past my role and arc's role was to say wait this is where you're at now but how do we help you sustain your future mm-hmm. And in doing that, they didn't bring that burden with them. Yeah. And we give them the opportunity to work through that stuff because we, we have therapists and counsellors on board. But we take people where they're at. Mm. And I always maintain that, you know, anybody can fall in the hole. Anybody. But you just need help to be pulled out of it. And that's what we're there for. Amazing. And, and where did the idea of ARC Fitness come from? Was it just a, a build on and a follow on from your own recovery and journey? So I used Instagram a long time ago, my personal Instagram, and I was always recovery orientated. And, and you know yourself, see, when you've been through something, yeah. you always, you know, I think it's, it's a new then to be able to share that so other people don't. And I say that in the late late show, so other people don't have to have the same story or issues that maybe you had going forward. And then a friend had said that he had a friend who was struggling um, and he tried to share one of the posts but couldn't share. Had you ever thought about setting up a, a page? Mm. I was like well no I didn't and I was climbing at this stage I've done a lot of underplaying and I was climbing up and down and then her fitness at the top so we came down my home and set up a Facebook page and that was the start and I initially was just going to use ARC as a signposting service mm-hmm. um, for me to signpost people to reputable personal trainers and gyms that I knew of here to help them get fitter and stronger and then within two weeks of setting up it exploded um, and people were, were looking for referrals and counsellors were looking to refer people to me. I was like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. Um, so I thought about it and I thought, you know, I have the experience. I have personal experience, the professional experience, personal training qualification. Like, why don't you just do it yourself? Yeah. And that literally started the process. So we focused on the social media stuff too. Just the obviously, it's a big thing for me to change the conversation. And to be positive and hopeful as opposed to negative and this thing is destructive as it can be but that can't be the sole focus um and then i took six individuals and i thought and i ran a free program and i thought we'll test it and we'll, we'll measure it so we got six guys and girls put them through a program we measured their anxiety and their depression scores um and the, we used the the king's college sure recovery recovery tool and their sleep tool measured it all the way through um and everybody everybody did better 
their mood improved, their anxiety reduced, they weren't using, their sleep improved, they got fitter because we tested a workout at the start and we retested at the end. Um, and from there, it has got to the point now where two years later, I my last day as a nurse is on Thursday. I leave my job on Thursday. Um, and I go to now work this now full time. Um, we have got funding from the National Lottery and from a local organization. You know, we're looking for premises. We're looking to put about 120 people through the program. There's been so much has happened. Yeah. But it's been really exciting. Um, and we're really seeing people actually change their life and embrace embrace sobriety and embrace accountability and openness mm. and talking about it. Um, and I think that's what's really important. We've created a community of people who aren't afraid to tackle this thing head on yeah. to get it. Richmond high five, well done. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and it's just, it's such an inspirational story. Um, I think there's power in community. And I've always believed that in if we as human beings can come together for the same cause, magic will start to happen. And it, it just breathes through your story in particular. Um, can you talk to me a little about the importance of community and, and maybe connection in terms of not just recovery, but I think in life, um, there's no how can the best put it no matter what way you look at it if it's in a mental health perspective or an addiction perspective you don't heal in isolation we can't heal in isolation most of the reason we got to where we're at because because of the isolation that we create because of our issue I, I, I watched that video by, by Johan Harry it talks about the power of connection and it's so important, you know, it's so important to be involved in something bigger than yourself. Um, with what we have found is we have found that people come into an environment that encourages them to get better naturally because they're around people that want that for them. If I sit at home, which I did for a long period of, of time, um, and somebody once described it as a cave, and if you're in a cave and you're talking in the cave, all you're hearing is your own voice. And if your own voice is negative and unhelpful and hurtful, that is never going to change. But within community, you get access to all of the other voices that are able to fill that void and tell you the things that you actually are, not what you think you are. And that just gives people a freedom and a space to actually come out of themselves. And it's a really, I'm going to go, it's a really beautiful thing to see somebody come from being really, really reserved, really anxious, really kind of enclosed to start to open up and watch that happen within the community. And we see that regularly. And it's just, it's, that's why we do it. That's why we do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I think it's really powerful because, you know, that voice in our head is is very hard to escape when it's all that we listen to. So um, I often think that one of the greatest things we can do for other human beings is to make them feel valued and feel seen and, and feel like they belong, you know. Um, one of the, 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 I suppose, in owning our story and taking responsibility for our story, um, what was the first step that you did that was, or even the most important step in, in taking responsibility for your story, like owning your story? What was the first step? That's a really, that's a really good question. And I'm a talker. Um, do you know what? I think for me was, after that last period of relapse um, that went on and, and that eventually finished, 
and I sat down and I looked at the wreckage and I looked at the stuff. Um, but I also saw that my wife, who was a partner at that, at that time, was still there and still ready to support me through this. And I thought, this is it. Now, this is where this has to change. Um, and that's when it did. Um, it's funny, there's so many kind of moments along the way where you think you've got it. Mm. And then, as you were saying, sometimes it just happens. You know, um, and I think that was it for me. I think I just decided that enough was enough and life could be better. Life didn't have to be as miserable as I felt it needed to be because yeah. I was a worthless person. Yeah. Um, and then when you start working on your self-esteem and your self-worth and all that sort of stuff, you feel that you deserve it again. Mm. And I often find, because, you know, my wife is, when I, when I met her first, um, like the very first time I met her, I remember the following day just been like, here's my story <laughs> this is me this is where I've been um half expecting her or even not fully expecting her to be like all right I'm out yes. and that was nearly eight years ago and she's still that same person that doesn't there's no judgment and I think it was the very first person that that really saw me for for me for everything that I was and everything that I wasn't yeah and there's power in that I think it's just when we can accept people as they are irregardless of their story irregardless of their past mm -hmm. magic starts to happen and, and it kind of forms into that community where if we can do that not just for our partners but for the people in our community then we can actually start to help people mm -hmm. just a lot more than actually what we're doing now because i think at the moment these days everything's online everything's instant we yeah. kind of just you know we start talking to people a little bit you know really talking and getting into the nitty-gritty and 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 yeah. How do we go about maybe forming better communities for ourselves if we are struggling a bit? What would you, what would your advice be? So, like, we're all different. So what I might like to connect with might be different than what you like to connect with or somebody else. But I think you need to find something. Um, and my wife, Sarah, was really good because she said, you can do whatever you want. I said no to everything. So I said no to trying things. I said no to trying communities. She, you know, the biggest obstacle to change is, is us. Yeah. Um, for me, the community was physical activity. So it was a runner club. It was being around people that chose to not drink because they trained, which normalized sobriety for me, which made me feel less like a weirdo, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what I needed. And then there was education. For me, again, went on the education. So it was in another community of people there. We were all getting on, we were all learning together. I didn't feel like I was a failure because I was doing okay. And that helped and it just progressed from there. But you need to try and be involved in something, but you need to try new things. I was afraid to try anything because I was afraid that I would fail or I would look silly or, you know, just being me. But all, like always, always try new things. And I think that's a really good thing. I mean, if my wife has taught me anything, it's that. Stop being the no guy and try. Because how do you know what you like? Because after 15 years of addiction, I had no clue what I liked anymore. As a person, I didn't know what I enjoyed. I just knew what I couldn't do. So trying things helped me. Climbing wall. And that was that was a try a new thing thing. Amazing. <laughs> and it was really good. Running, try a new thing thing. Like we're still that like. Um, so yeah, you just have to try. It's a trial and error thing for everybody because we're all so unique. I um I started running for my my mental health. I think in 2018 and it was 
more of less about the running and more about I just need to get out of the house and out of my head for a half hour or as, as much as I can. And it um it was it's the only thing that allows me to just be and not think and just have 20 minutes of flow. Um I hate running. I really don't like the actual doing running. Uh, for somebody who doesn't like running, you ran enough. No, <laughs> but what I always love about running is the fact that it just takes me out of my head and into my life. That's 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 my metaphor. And running for me is a huge metaphor for life because I always relied on um, one of my biggest scripts was I'm not good enough um, and I'll never be of value. That was that was the, the internal script that I had and still do to to a certain extent. It's always going to be there, I think, but I now know how to cope with it. Yeah. Um, I always relied on other people for validation, for um, for my self-worth, for self-respect, for my confidence. And if other people didn't give it to me, then it just made me feel worse and worse. And it's yeah. only over the last couple of years where I really, not only started to take a personal responsibility for my story, but to look at myself and go, how am I treating myself the same way I would treat my best friend? And, and that to me is, is, is fundamental because I am so good at being there for my best friends and my partner and everybody in my family. And I'm really bad at, at putting myself first. So this year in 2021, I've, I've decided that actually I'm going to start pouring my cup, right? And only until my cup is full, then I can't really give to other people. So every day I ask, okay, what's, what are the ways that I can start to fill my cup? And am I... Am I really starting to, to become my own best friend? Um, have you seen that in your journey as well? I have learned a lot over the last two years of pouring from an empty cup because I have, you know, I've been trying to build a community and, and work with ARC and have a job and we have a life and a kid and to the point where I'm spent at times. So the point of having to be good to yourself and learning self-care and not being able to pour from an empty cup is so important. But I think it's a real skill that we have to learn. Like, and it, or actually, I take that back. I think it's a real choice that we have to make. Um, and for me, I don't always make that choice. There's times, you know, I'll, I'll find an excuse to be busy. Um, and I think going forward, I think from what you've just said and me moving forward with ARC, especially as one job changes and one it becomes a one thing, that I need to start practicing that self-care better. Because if I am not well or I am not functioning properly, then nothing is functioning properly. My family, ARC, the people that I'm trying to help. Mm -hmm. um, and it's almost sometimes when we're trying to talk to people, then we're telling them all these things that they should do and we're not doing them. Yeah. <laughs> that other little voice comes in your head and he yeah. says, what are, you, what are you talking about? Yeah, I often, I often say that as well to all of my wife. I'm like, I feel like the biggest hypocrite sometimes because I'm sure to find other people. And then I'm also like, this is what I think, you know, is best. Yeah. And I just don't do it myself. So it is, it's difficult, but it is. Mm -hmm. To become aware of it is, is the skill in itself, I think. Um, and I suppose to go back to running, what I love most about running and trying to develop that deeper relationship with myself is that when I'm running, I am the only person that's responsible for me moving forward. Um, I'm reliant on my, my two legs. And if I stop running, then I don't move forward. If I stay where I am, that's my personal responsibility. Um, yeah. How fast and how slow I go is, is up to me. That's right. um, and that's what I love because 
every time I go out to run, it's like a vote for myself becoming my own best friend. And I don't really like the activity of running, but I love what it gives me and and how I feel afterwards because it, it really helps and feeds into my confidence. Um, which will tie up to, to your new challenge. Um, talk to me about your challenge of uh, what you want to do. Do you, did you ever, do you ever have an idea and you think that sounds really cool and then you start trying to practice it and you're like what was I actually thinking? Yeah last year. <laughs> so for me and it's funny the things that you were saying about running um, resonates a lot because I got sober and started running and I was like the forest Gump of dairy I was running everywhere but it was like meditation on the move it was I processed so many negative emotions whilst I ran Mm-hmm. And I loved running because it was measurable and achievable. I could see progress. I could see small bits. And, and that kept me interested because then I was a little bit faster or I went a little bit further. And it was easier to measure that whenever I was in recovery because I felt I was doing really well. Yeah. Um, but I think running, running is just an, an, an essential thing. Um, we have a running therapist actually on staff. Um, and he counsels through, through, through the, the running therapy. But the challenge... So five marathons in five days but we're using a 22 pound weight vest so 22 pounds is, it's a 10 kg so if you know a bumper plate from a gym it's a bumper plate attached to you so it's it's like a, it's like a person small person attached to you and i've started a training plan now i'm on week six now um a guy that i connected with a while back did the program for me so it's not going to be fun right but that's not the point the point is this year we are running a, a no shame campaign and it's not just about the run. The run is a part of what we're doing. It's an awareness builder, but the no shame campaign in itself will run for the rest of the year. And it's about, I think you'll understand that guilt and shame act as a barrier to just getting help. It, it acts as, you know, for mental recovery, the stuff that I did in my past was a massive barrier for me because I felt that I couldn't move forward because of shame and guilt and all that sort of stuff. Families feel it too. Family members, uh, society does that. So for us to be able to change the conversation and open it up and say that you're not your past, you're not the things that you've done. They happened, there's consequences, you deal with them, but that's not who you are. That is the real ethos about the thing that what we're doing. And it's tied into a lot of Renee Brown stuff and compassion and courage and vulnerability. And, and it tied into what you were saying, you know, whenever, before we started asking about what you were comfortable talking with. And that vulnerability, I think, is there's a real courage in that. Mm-hmm. And if we can encourage people to be courageous, yeah. then there's going to be so much change and there's going to be so many positive conversations. But we are looking in to now adapt in trauma-based workshops that were used in the troubles before to now fit the addiction recovery model. So actually use that as a storytelling piece for people. Um, do some kind of social media videos and stuff. We're, we're working on that and everything at the minute. And we just want people to be able to talk about these things. It's like yourself, you want to encourage people to be able to have a non-emotion-filled conversation about something that could happen to anybody. Yeah. And that's the purpose. So like, as I said, the run is part of that. My feet won't thank me for it at the end of it. Um, and I don't think I'll ever wear a weight vest again after. Yeah. But um, do you know, and part of that too is for me. Part of that challenge is for for me. Lockdown has got its own pressures for me. You know, my I I'm highly structured and I'm very routine and all that sort of stuff. And then lockdown comes and brings all the uncertainty and all the training that you could have done all stop. So it gave me it refocused me. 
Give me a purpose and a plan and a structure. Um, and I need that. So everybody, everybody wants. Yeah. Except me, except <laughs> um, it's funny when you replied to my message on Instagram when I reached out um, you said you had a look at my run and the Connor Pass that to me was one of the most poignant days because um, when we started in Derry in January um, the very first day was a weather warning so there was wind up to like 25 kilometers just coming straight into my face nice. <laughs> and then, so by the time we got to Dingle to the Connor Pass I had ran through I think two or three storms at this stage um, which is fine, but then got to Dingle and uh, sure enough, Storm Kira was coming. And I'll never forget my mother texting me going, don't fucking do it. I'm thinking, you know, if you go out in that storm, I'm going to kill you. Like if the storm doesn't kill you, I'll kill you. Um, so I literally just was like, I just have to do it. When are you ever going to find that opportunity to literally have you versus you? So that day, that whole day was, oh man, I like, I never forget it as long as I live. Um, running into uphill for about five or six kilometers because you know the kind of pass well <laughs> um and and if, if you're coming from the dingle say it's quite a steep pull yeah there. um with hail and wind and rain and all sorts of weather and i remember coming down the hill i actually came the other side i came down the hill into dingle and the sun just came out of nowhere and just started to shine and i actually just I stood there at the road and I said, this couldn't be more poignant and better for me because it was that day that I let go of the old Kira who, who doesn't serve herself, who doesn't um, value herself, who doesn't have any self-worth and realize that if you can do what you're doing now in the weather that you're doing now, then this is the choice that you made and continue to make good choices for yourself. So it always comes back to my story is this power of choice. It's, what are the choices I'm making today? Are they fueling my my misery, my, my negativity? Are they fueling that part of me that doesn't make me feel good? Or are they fueling that part of me that actually makes me feel good? And one of the things I um, did this year was I actually gave up alcohol. Um, because one of the main reasons was because I I wasn't really addicted to it or anything like that, but when I went out to drink, I drank a ton. And the main reason was the fact that I got hungover, irregardless of whether I had one point or 22 points. And so I always made it work my while. <laughs> if I'm going to die for two days, then might as well just yeah. do it. Um, and it was just something that I always was like, why do you do this to yourself? If this is how you suffer and struggle, why is it this thing? And it was always for me that need to feel uh, accepted and you know valued in that friendship or being part of that group. Um, and now since lockdown, because the pubs are closed, it's taken away all that pressure. Yeah. It's taken away all that where I'm kind of like, actually people that I thought I'd lose by not drinking, are still there and I still get to have deep and meaningful conversations and I still value their friendships and we've found alternative ways to connect um but I was forced the first day I was forced um I was in a at a friend's house and I she was like do you want to have a glass of wine and I was like actually every part of me wanted to say yes just to try and fit in and um, yeah. I know this person very well and I kind of just went do you know what actually I, I've kind of given it up now or for for I have no time limit on this and it was like this person I can only equate it to this person just going 
yes, yes, yes. It was like me praising myself for finally uh, just going, oh, yeah, I'm so proud of you. Um, and it's just, it then ties back into that choice of making yeah. choices that better yourself. And I'm really happy I made that one. And those are the people that you need in, in your life. So we see, we see it all the time whenever people come and they're trying to stop using drugs or alcohol in their circle of friends and their fear is they're going to be the weird person. And, mm. you know, somebody said to me, like, you know, what do you do if you don't drink or you drugs? I do everything else. I yes. just don't drink or take drugs. Everything else, nothing changes. Um, doesn't make me a boring person. Uh, if you're a boring person, that's just unfortunate for you because you're bored. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with the drugs and the alcohol. Um, but it's the culture thing, isn't it? and it's that's the it's that fear. People people fear what happens if I stop. Mm-hmm. Where can I go? What can I do? And that's a real barrier. It's a shame. And like, how often do you have to kind of defend yourself for not being a drinker yeah it's it's really strange like, like you have to always defend yourself like i, I don't drink well why not what's wrong with you you, you know <laughs> because yeah. I, because i don't want to be hungover i want to be functional in the morning i want to be able to get up and go for a run at half five if i choose to i want you know i want my brain to work functional i i just you know I, people function better without alcohol and i think everybody should go for a period of time not having a drink because yeah. I don't think they'll, they'll realise how much they rely on it. Yeah. You know, definitely. So Super October, all that sort of stuff, they're all really good because what they do is, and they're great for charities, but what they highlight, they do highlight some under underlying issues in people. And I think that's a good thing. Um, anybody, just to finish up, anybody who might be struggling, whether it's addiction, whether it's mental health um, or anything else, what would be your best advice? Find somebody in your life that you love and that you respect and value and have that open and honest conversation. Don't assume that they're going to react in a way because nine times, I think nearly every time they don't react like you presume that they're going to. Mm. Be vulnerable and be open and start that process of learning how to talk about what is actually happening because sitting in it won't change it. You know, it, it doesn't. And I'm not saying go out and put it on Facebook and tell all of your friends this massive problem. Find a person, two people that you love, respect and trust and have that conversation and start there. And then I often, I often say, because I've done a lot of work with different charities and one of the main things is if you're um, struggling, ask for help. And I, I love that. I love that phrase, you know, just be courageous and ask for help. But often, I often think of if we're really struggling, like I remember when I was really struggling, that was asking for help was one of the hardest things that I could actually do, as well as trying to deal with what I was actually trying to struggle with at, 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 at that time. Yes, um, yeah. So what I always try to say to is, if you can see the signs that someone might be struggling, don't be afraid to reach out, because I think society has told us that in order to reach out, we have to have all the tools and we have to know what to say and we have yeah. to have all the right things. And if we actually say something wrong, it might make it worse. I think as human beings, one of the best things we can do is, again, make people feel seen and, and feel heard and feel valued. So would you agree with me on that? If someone sees someone who's struggling, to just be there to listen, to ask the question and to listen. Yes. Listening is hard sometimes because we're natural fixers. So the listener part is really important. And, and I suppose what we see, if someone is struggling with drugs or alcohol, people see it, people mm-hmm. know it. 
it's there. It's sometimes it can't just be hidden. Um, so if you have someone in your life that is struggling, yes, have the conversation. From an addiction perspective, and if it's a family member and you see it happening and you, you don't know how to have the conversation because it's conflict, 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 it's all the time, you need to be able to take some time, plan out the conversation and try and have it emotionally, but always from a place of love and always from a place of compassion. Because what will happen is the anger and the fear will come in yep. and this is where that happens and nobody wins in that situation. So, you, you know, have the conversation, plan, prepare, but always bring it from this place of love and, and desire. We, like we, we're afraid for you. We want you to be better or we want you to do better. You seem like you're not doing very well just now. And that sounds different from like, you need to sort stuff out. You need to fix it. Stop being in your bed. What do you mean you're sad? Get up. That is so unhelpful. Yeah. It actually makes us feel worse, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember, somebody had to say, Gary, one more time, go and just stop drinking. Yeah. I was like, I never thought of that one, but thanks for highlighting that. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah come here thank you so so much i i just i could talk to you for hours and i think uh, hopefully when the lockdown lifts we can come up to dairy again and um get to hang out uh, properly and, and and really i'd love to visit arc and and stuff so that would be amazing um more than well. how do we help so i would love if anybody's listening to to go on and let's support what you're doing let's support your run how where's the best place to find you how can we so, we are on Facebook, Instagram, we're, we're on all the social media channels. Um, and if you go on there, you'll see now there's a lot of our stuff that's relating to the, the No Shame campaign. In relation to the runs, um, there's a GoFundMe link on there. You can support the runs, obviously, as these keep us sustainable as a service as well as change the conversation. But what we are doing is, you know, if we have a we have an online store, if you buy a t-shirt, take a picture, hashtag no shame, or if you have a story. Hashtag no shame. Just get behind what we're doing. Share our stuff. You know, share your stuff with us. Yep. Um, this thing doesn't work. In, it's like community. It doesn't work in isolation. Yep. The more people that are, are, are in this, the better. This is not just for dairy. This is for everybody. Um, thank you so much for being part of the Inside Out podcast. You have no doubt provided so much value to, to so many. So I, I thank you for thank your time. You're a legend. Kier, thank you so much. It was, great to, it was great to be part of it. And keep up the great work yourself. Thank you so much. Cheers, you're good. You're good.